This morning's scripture reading comes from John 1, 35 through 51. <clears throat> the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, why are you, what, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. <clears throat> you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, the Israelite. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Peter called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Brad, and I'd love to meet you. Um, I want to say thanks to the Penn family and Neil for leading us in, in worship through music this morning. We, Peter and Lori both got called into work this morning and other people were planning on playing other instruments and they just all made it work. And so thank you. And Jordan, we know you play drums. We're going to get you on that kit one day. So <laughs> great job this morning. Um, we're talking about discipleship this morning, and uh, Michael, you probably never thought five or six years ago that you'd have three kids by now, and they'd be helping you lead worship this morning, so it's pretty cool what God can do. Um, about six or seven, probably six years ago, uh, Peter Braswell and I, Peter typically plays bass up here, and he's a videographer and jack-of-all-trades. Uh, Peter and I were sitting at Central Barbecue, and uh, we started having one of those conversations that gets us into trouble from time to time. And something came up about tiny houses and building things. And I told Peter, I've been thinking about building a shed in my backyard. How long do you think it would take to do that? And Peter said, I think, yeah, that." And Robert, I think, was around. And we determined about four weekends we could probably put a shed together. And um, <clears throat> so that's what we did. I bought a book from Home Depot. 
and it had a lot of different projects in it, and I picked one shed out. I really liked the way it looked. It was about 12 by 18, and um, it had all of four pages of instructions on how to build it. And so we just looked at the pictures, and we started, you know, Peter knew how to frame, and so we just kind of started building it, and we had help along the way, and it ended up taking about, oh, at least three times longer than expected, and it cost twice as much, which is a lot like the Christian life. Um, but what I, what I determined along the way was, even though I'd never built a shed before, I didn't, I didn't have to know all the steps. I just needed to know the next thing to do. Like, I figured out, I'd watch YouTube videos, and I'd figure out how to pour some footings. And so we mixed up concrete and poured footings one weekend. And, and then another weekend, we, we framed the foundation and finished it out. And then Peter would always leave me with homework. You know, we would get one rafter. We would figure out the angle of one rafter. And he would say, 16 to go. What? See you later. No problem. And then I would just work on what he left me to do. Oftentimes, I think, here's the big idea for today. Following Jesus isn't complex. It begins one step at a time. Following Jesus begins just one step at a time. I didn't know how to build a whole building. It turned out that Chris helped me run electrical to the shed. Takesha ended up moving in with us for a year. And so my office went out in that shed, and it turned out a lot better than we ever thought. I didn't know how to build it. I just needed to know the next step. It seems that we've made Christianity very complex. Imagine, if you will, if you're interested in God and if you didn't grow up in a church family, where would you begin? Do you have any friends like this? Where would you begin? So many different denominations. I mean, if you have almost no understanding of the Bible, so many different translations of the Bible... And how do you even read it? Have you picked up the Bible and looked at it before? Because if you begin in the beginning, there's a good chance you might never get to Jesus. Like Jesus in the flesh, in the Gospels, because you've got to make it through Deuteronomy and Lamentations. Anybody read Numbers recently? There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament. Like, imagine for someone, if they were really interested in following Jesus... We haven't even gotten to the fact that church people are weird. It's okay. I'm talking about you and me. We're weird. We have weird lingo. You walk into a service. You don't know when to stand. You don't know when to kneel. You don't know how they're going to do communion. Do you drink out of the cup? Do you dip the bread in it? Like you're just kind of looking around going, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing. It's pretty complex. But I'm convinced that Jesus never meant for our faith to be complex. So how do you know that? He cared so much that we would come to follow Him that He came in the flesh. He came and He modeled for us what it looks like to be a follower of God. What it looks like to live this life. He never meant for our faith to be complex. And in the passage today, I don't know a much better passage of Scripture to give us a framework for what it looks like to both know God and to grow in God. To both know God and to grow in God. And that's what the book of John is all about. It's, John said in John 
chapter 20, verse 31, he said, These things are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that we may find life in His name. And if you read commentators, some of them will not swear up and down because they don't swear. But they, will, they, they are just certain that, Jesus, that John wrote this for non-believers. And if you read other commentators, they are just completely certain that he wrote this for believers. And I believe that both is true. Because for all of our life, the goal is that we would believe that we would follow Jesus. And that's a lifelong affair. So, something we all can gain today. Four steps I want us to look at in this framework for knowing and growing in Jesus. We're going to see it in the response of John the Baptist, witness of Jesus, and then in Andrew and Philip's response and their witness to their friends. The first step in this framework for knowing and growing in Jesus is this. It's a question. What are you seeking? Look at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In verse 35, John writes and he begins with the words, the next day. This is the third day in John's narrative. Uh, we've talked a little bit about John. John was Jesus' best friend. He was called the Beloved. And in John's gospel, John wrote in around AD 85. So it's over 50 years since Jesus has ascended to the Father. Most likely, the other disciples are, are all dead by now. Uh, most of the eyewitnesses that knew Jesus have also passed away. And in this gospel, John gives us 90% new material. We don't, there's 90% of the material in this gospel that we don't find in any of the other gospels. And so we're going to learn an awful lot about Jesus from his best friend that we wouldn't know anywhere else if John hadn't written it. And he wrote it with a very specific purpose. And it's interesting as he writes this in chapter 1, um, if you look, you will see that in verse 19 he says the first day. And then in verse 29 he says the second day. And now we just read verse 35, which was the third day. If you go on and you read in verse 43, uh, which we'll look at in a few minutes, he'll talk about the fourth day. And then when you get to chapter 2, verse 1, when it, Jesus turns water into wine on that first miracle he accomplishes... He says three days later. What's the significance? John seems to be giving us seven days as if to say on this last day in which Jesus turns water into wine that Jesus is bringing about a new creation, a new kind of relationship in which his ministry would be inaugurated in this new week, in this new creation. Now, that, that's a good place for us to kind of jump in here and pick back up with the story of, of John the Baptist, we looked at OJB last week, and, and he is standing with a couple of his disciples, and he had just baptized Jesus the previous day, and he's introduced Jesus, and now he calls out again, Behold the Lamb of God! Behold the Lamb of God! You know, a lamb, I mean, we could spend hours tracing the lambs in the Old Testament, all the way back to Abraham and Isaac. Where will we find the lamb? We see lambs all throughout the Old Testament leading up uh, to Egypt in which we see the Passover lamb 
And now, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And what do his disciples do? His disciples do exactly what he's taught them to do. They leave him. They leave John the Baptist, and they go with Jesus. And as they follow Jesus, he turns and he asks them a pivotal question. And it's step one in the framework for, for knowing and growing in Jesus. And the question is this, what are you seeking? It's a great question for those who are in the faith and those who are outside the faith. It's a great question for those who claim to be believers and for those who are not yet believers. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, he's an old guy, he's dead now, but so you're going to hear some kind of older language here, but he says this really well. I have a quote for you. The true answer to this question reveals your spiritual state. Let no one suppose he's not seeking anything. Such were an impossibility. Every heart has its object. If your heart is not set upon Christ himself, it is set upon something which is not Christ. What seek ye? Is it gold, fame, ease, and comfort, pleasure, or what? On what is your heart set? Is it an increased knowledge of Christ, a more intimate acquaintance with him, a closer walk with him? Can you say in measure at least, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Following Jesus is all-encompassing. It costs Jesus all of his life, and we're no different. If you show me a gospel message that doesn't call for all of life, then it's not the gospel. And the truth is that as we come to follow Jesus, what are you seeking? We never retire from being a Christian. So many Christians we see these days will say, I've put in my time, and now it's time for me to have some time to myself. It's very rare to see someone who is a follower of Jesus, who has followed Jesus their entire life, and served him in a growing and maturing way. And people who do that, who say, I, I've served Jesus, I've spent my time in the church, and now it's time for me, they set themselves up for loneliness and for a lack of fulfillment because we are created to glorify God. And we will find our greatest joy, not in our spouse and not in our kids and not in our house and not in our job, we will find our greatest joy in Jesus. And all those other things are lesser pleasures that are meant to point us to Him. The disciples asked Jesus, where are you staying? And He replies in verse 39, with these words, come and see. Come and see. I know you're not supposed to make your title one of your points, or your points one of your title, but I did that. And how, what, what great words, how simple. Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It's interesting to me. Get outside our Christian context for just a moment. It's interesting that Jesus didn't say, well, guys, you're going to have to make an appointment. Let me, check my, let me check my calendar. Let me see when I have an opening. You can stop by my office. I've got some office hours. Uh, I've got, uh, how about three weeks? How does that look? Jesus didn't say any of that. What did Jesus say? He said, come and see. He began, well, actually, he didn't begin with truth. He began with relationship. Now, that's interesting. 
How often, when it comes to our own lives and when it comes to the lives of others who are coming to know Jesus, do we try to begin with truth? Oh, we need to witness to them. We need to tell them about Jesus. We need to share the gospel with them. Jesus didn't begin with truth. He began with relationship. I want you to think for just a moment. Take out a pen and a, and a piece of paper. Um, just a quick, um, quick illustration for you. Quick example. Write down the five greatest sermons you've heard in your entire life. Write them down. Go for it. I want you to grab a piece of paper and a pen. Write down the five greatest sermons you've heard in your entire life. You ought to be able to remember a couple. Write them down. Five greatest sermons. All right. Now, as you're working on that, continue. Write down the five greatest spiritual experiences that you've had in your entire life. Five greatest spiritual experiences that you've had in your entire life. like we need some Jeopardy music in the background. All right, now, you probably see where this is going. Write down the five most influential people in your spiritual walk with God in your life. Write those five names down. All right, I think you get the point. Let me ask a question. How many was it easier for you to write down five sermons? Anybody? There's probably somebody here who really learns through sermons, and that might have been true. How about how many of you, was it easier for you to write down uh, five experiences, five spiritual experiences that you had? Yeah, several hands go up. Absolutely. Now, for how many for you, was it easier to write down five relationships that you've had that have been most, yeah, and I think that's most of us. Now, isn't that interesting Come and see. Fred and Mary Naude were from Zimbabwe, South Africa. They became great friends of mine and Katie's. Um, I finished college. We moved to Memphis. Uh, a month later, Katie had finished college in three years. Um, we were on the fast track. It seemed to do everything. She had finished up college that last summer. She took her exams. The day she was taking her exams, I was packing the truck. She finished her exams. The next day, we got in the truck, and we moved here. And we unload in July, and we start school in August, and it's just a whirlwind. And before we know it, we've got a kid. And I'm like, 24, 25, she's 22, 23, and we've got a little boy, Riley. And, uh, man, life was crazy. And Fred and Mary Naude come into our lives. They were going to be IMB missionaries with the International Mission Board. They lived in seminary housing. They were about 15 years ahead of us. Uh, Fred worked at corporate at FedEx. And uh, Mary had grown up in Zimbabwe as a missionary kid. Fred was from Zimbabwe. And uh, English was not his first language. And they just became great friends to us. And over time, we were part of this little church plant. I was an intern, little church plant in Arlington that met at Vinegar Jim's Restaurant, a catfish place, if anybody's ever been there before. And uh, it was one of those church plants where it's like we had a small group during the week, and then we had services on Sunday, and sometimes we had about as many on Sunday as we had during the week. Like, it was really small. 
But I experienced something from the lives of Fred and Mary Naude as they said, come and see. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I attended a church setting much like this uh, my entire life. Believe me, if the church doors were open, we were there early, and we stayed late. Um, but there's something that I experienced with Fred and Mary that was almost like it made this black letters on white pages come to life. It was community. It was relationship. It was like the Christian life became 3D. And here's what was so weird about it all. They were normal people, but they loved Jesus. And they just invited us into their lives. They had kids that were older than ours. Uh, we would walk into their apartment for small group, and Mary would say, Katie, you give me that baby. And, you know, we were first-time young parents. We didn't think anybody could care for our kid, and we would hardly let anyone hold our kid. We were those parents. And, uh, and Mary would say, no, you, you give me that baby, and you go sit down and rest. And Katie was exhausted. because we, we knew nothing about parenting. Riley would, Riley would cry, and we would hold him, and we, we knew nothing and Fred and Mary helped us all along the way. I remember uh, being a part of the leadership team and going to Starbucks at night for a meeting. And Fred saying, hey, are you going to get some coffee? And I remember saying, uh, no, no, I'm good. This is hard for some of y'all to believe because I should own stock in Starbucks as often as I'm there these days. But to that point in time, I had never bought a cup of coffee from Starbucks because I couldn't afford it. We were in seminary, and we were paying our way as we went through, and it would be a luxury to go to Wendy's or McDonald's. We absolutely did not eat out. Every penny went to rent and paying for school, and we had a ton of people back in our church home in Alabama that were helping us get through school without any debt, and, and I'm in Starbucks, and I'm not about to spend 2 or $3 on a cup of coffee. Never had my whole life, and Fred said, Oh, let me buy you a cup of coffee. And I, had, I came to experience a little taste of heaven here on earth in dark roast and uh, just had never had it before. And I can remember just Fred caring for us. And there was a point in time in which um, financially we were wondering uh, how things were going to turn out. And uh, he kind of went to bat on our behalf for the church plant and said, we, we need to help them out. They, he cared for us. They cared for our family. They said, come and see. I can remember Mary. Mary was small and thin. And um, I can remember being over there at their apartment one night. And uh, I remember Fred and I were talking about the church plant. And things weren't going that well. I was just an intern. And uh, I can remember Mary saying, Y'all stop it. Brad, have you been home today? You went to seminary this morning. And you've been working all afternoon. I was painting houses, I think, at the time. And uh, she said, you go home. Katie's at home with that little baby, and she needs you, and y'all aren't going to fix this church, and you're not even in charge of it, so you get out of here and you go home. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I left, because that's what you did when, when Mary talked to you like that. And you knew that that was the way in which she loved you. Come and see. I could go on and on and on about Fred and Mary. Love them. They're back in, in South Africa now. And here's the thing. We talked about theology a lot, but it's the relationship that I remember the most. And I know that many of you have had a Fred and Mary in your life. 
You know, for some of you, that was your parents in the beginning, and then someone else stepped in and just maybe took up where they left off, or you had a spiritual mentor along the way. Maybe it was a youth minister or a pastor, or it was someone that that maybe you roomed with in college. Each of us has had people along the way who have said, come and see. Now, here's what's so interesting to me in this story. Many of the commentators will look at what's taking place here and they will talk about, they will say, is this conversion or is this calling for the disciples? And some will argue, this is when these disciples that, that Jesus calls, this is, this is when they got converted. I don't know. Read the end of the Gospels. Because the end of the Gospels say that Jesus was resurrected and he appeared before them and several of the Gospels say, and many still did not believe. Was this their calling? I don't know if it was their conversion or their calling, but I'm convinced that we are a little confused about the way that we are called to make disciples. got a um, slide for you, and uh, it should say evangelism. And then it should have a cross, and then say discipleship. So if you think about it, oftentimes when we think about making disciples, we oftentimes will think about that we need to share truth with people. We need to do evangelism, right? And then as they come to the cross of Jesus Christ, as we share truth with them, they will come to a point in which they will believe, and then we'll start discipleship. And we'll, then we'll teach them what it looks like to get on the road to following Jesus. That's kind of the pathway that we oftentimes think about, I think in some ways that that is flipped. Look at the next slide. Jesus begins with discipleship. Come and see. He's going to eventually get the truth. He's going to get the truth pretty quickly. He's going to eventually point them to the cross and they're going to say, no, Jesus, they're going to completely miss it. They're going to, Jesus is going to tell them about his death once again and they're going to say, oh, okay, that's good, Jesus, but who can sit on your left and right? Like, obviously, they missed the fact that if Jesus had granted that to them, they would be in the thieves' places on the cross. They totally missed the point. But they would eventually come to a point where they would follow Jesus, and then they would spend the rest of their lives evangelizing, declaring the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ both to themselves and to others. Peter still needed to evangelize himself. He still needed to preach the gospel to himself. Read Galatians 4 and 5. He gets confused and Paul comes to him and reminds him of the gospel. We so oftentimes think that we should begin with truth. Jesus begins with come and see. Come and see. Let me ask you this. How long have you been a follower of Jesus? And who is in your life now that you are saying come and see? If you love Jesus, and you can't say, follow me as I follow Christ, then you're missing out on, on, I believe, what's probably the greatest joy of the Christian life outside of just knowing Jesus. Jesus goes on to tell us how to do this. Let's look at step three in verses 40 through 42. And step three of knowing and growing in Jesus is just bring your closest friends. It's really simple. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Don't you love this? Andrew, 
we know a lot less about him because Peter becomes more famous later. But he's introduced first because he comes to follow Jesus first. And what's the first thing that Andrew does? He goes and he tells the person he's closest to about Jesus. He brings Peter, his brother, to Jesus. I think this is really natural in the beginning of our Christian lives. We're excited, we're passionate, we're on fire for Jesus. But over time, we begin to take Jesus for granted. Familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder. And here's what's so important about that. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way in which we live. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way in which we live. If you aren't passionate about meeting Jesus in His Word, if you aren't passionate about pointing other people to Jesus, then something has stolen your heart's affection. Which is a nice way of saying you're worshiping something else. It's idolatry. What are you seeking? That's Jesus' question. What are you seeking? I think when it comes to this very natural way in which Andrew went and found his brother Peter and then brought him to Jesus, it's very natural in our lives when we first come to Jesus. But I think it has to be cultivated for most of us in much the same way that, that we began our marriage. Uh, we began our married life with passion and emotion and romance. Uh, I did a wedding just last uh, yesterday afternoon. Omar and Amber got married and... And it was beautiful, and they had practiced a dance, and, and we're uh, there in a big ballroom, and, and they're dancing together, and, and it was just great pictures. But there will be a time in their lives, just like there is for each of us, when they don't share that same excitement and passion and romance, and it needs to be cultivated. They'll have to prioritize spending time together and growing in their affection for one another. And our relationship with Jesus is much the same way. If we're not passionate about knowing and following Him, then we shouldn't try harder. We should repent. Repent of the things that we've worshipped more than Jesus and then begin to pursue Him in His Word, through His community, actively participating in His family. You know, it's funny. We're not shy about restaurants that we love. Like when, when we find a place that, man, we just really love the food, we tell everybody about it. And if you take that analogy a little further, the question is, if you're not telling people about Jesus, do you not love the food anymore? Like what does it say about us if we aren't passionate, if we don't have a desire to know Jesus, to be in His Word, to know Him more, and then to point others to Him? That's exactly what we see take place in this final step of knowing and growing in Jesus. Follow along as I finish out this chapter beginning in verse 43 as Jesus simply says, follow me. Follow me. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. 
Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Notice that Philip says to Nathanael uh, what Jesus had said. Philip goes to Nathanael and he says, Come and see. And then there is this amazement on Nathanael's part as he sees the power of Jesus to see him. And he recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus says that even greater things than these will be done as Jesus reveals himself to be God in the flesh. Jesus is pointing back to that moment in which Jacob wrestled with God as he escaped from his brother. And as he slept, he saw this, had a dream of a ladder. And there were angels ascending and descending. And Jesus is referring to that. And he is saying, you'll see even greater things than these because you're going to see the Son of God. And you're going to see God at work. You're going to see God in the flesh. Right in front of your eyes. You know, one thing that's interesting about this passage is that we see all types of different testimonies here. We see people come to Jesus in all types of different ways, right? I mean, Nathaniel, that's pretty supernatural in the way that he comes to Jesus. He shows up and he's kind of like, oh, what, what good could come from Nazareth? He's got a lot of doubt. And Jesus just like drops a vision on him that he's seen. And Nathaniel goes, whoa. That's incredible. Some of these other guys, it's maybe not so incredible in the way in which they come to Jesus. Oftentimes, it seems like we think of our testimonies as if there's a good testimony and a bad testimony. Or we think of our testimonies in, as if there's just one way to know to, to come to Jesus. Like, did you pray the prayer? Like, where were you? Like, did you ask Jesus to come into your heart? The truth of the matter is there are no good or bad testimonies. I, I remember growing up as a kid in a Southern Baptist church and uh, just kind of thinking like, man, I wish I had a good testimony, you know? Because good testimonies, like, you had to have killed somebody, almost, right? And you had to, you had to do drugs and you had to slept around with a bunch of folks and then you come to know Jesus. And those are like the great testimonies, Right? My testimony is just like, man, I, you know, I was like five days old, and they took me to the church building with them, and I was there ever since. And then I came to know Jesus when I was six. And listen, folks, there are no good or bad testimonies. They're all good. Because I guarantee you that every parent in the room is praying for their kids to have a bad testimony, right? <laughs> we don't want any of those other things that I, that I referenced earlier. But here we see that there's lots of different ways that people come to Jesus. It's not simply about how we start. It's how we finish the Christian life. Eugene Peterson has said that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. It's interesting, if you get to the end of this book, in John chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus is going to look at his disciples. What do you think some of his final words are going to be to them? He's going to drop some truth on them. Two words. Follow me. 
His words never change. Follow me. Following Jesus is never meant to be complex. It begins one step at a time. We've made it very complicated for ourselves and for others. Jesus simply asks us to step out in faith. You know, there is one thing that I learned about building that shed. Uh, Building goes a lot easier if you actually do know all the steps. So my shed, if you go and measure, it's actually 12 by 17. And um, that's kind of an awkward measurement. What I came to find out later is if I would have built it 12 by 16, then four-foot plywood, well, I could have bought a lot less. And then it just goes on and on and on. But because I poured the footers, and I poured them just a little bit off, and I wasn't thinking through the next step, well, I didn't know how everything would fit together. And we made it work, but it wasn't the easiest. Here's the thing about the Christian life that we can embrace. Jesus is the master builder. And we don't know the steps that are involved in our lives, but he does. Michael never thought six years ago, no, it wasn't six years ago, it was probably five years ago, when we hired him to come and run sound for us on Easter at Minglewood Hall, because we were meeting on Sunday mornings seven years ago. Seven years ago, my goodness. Time flies, he says. He never thought that he would be here. He was single at the time, married, and now with three kids. Probably never thought that, but Jesus knows each step along the way. He only calls us to be obedient. Because he's the master builder, and he's building a kingdom of people. Paul writes in Ephesians and says that Jesus has works prepared in advance in order that we would walk in them. It's Ephesians 2.10. And having faith involves one step at a time. When Paul says that, that Jesus has works prepared in advance, that we would walk in them, he goes on and he says that, that we are, those works are, it's the Greek word poema. That we are his masterpiece. Literally, a work made by God. In Jesus, each of our lives can be a poetic statement of God's glory. Jesus, the master artisan, designs each of our lives to join and interlock, to create a big picture. This giant living tapestry woven of people. And in the moment, that tapestry looks like a mess. If you've ever taken a tapestry off the wall and looked at the back, the front's beautiful. What does the back look like? Oh, it's interwoven. It just looks like a mess. There's fringe. You can't tell what's going on. And that's oftentimes what our lives feel like. But Jesus, He's the perfect builder. He's the master builder. And He says, come and see and follow me. Two questions for you to consider as we move toward communion. Who are you discipling? It simply begins with having a relationship with someone and declaring, just as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. Listen, don't go and be Jesus to anybody because you can't. Oftentimes I hear people say, go and be Jesus. You can't. You can't be Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. Because he lived a perfect life. But you can show people and you can point people to the Jesus who has changed you.
And in the midst of that, know that Jesus is at work. Who are you discipling? If you'll simply be open, if you'll simply pray, if you'll simply seek Jesus and abide in Him, He will bring people your way in order that you would disciple them. I was sitting in a coffee shop a few years ago, sitting in Otherlands, and as I sat there reading my Bible, there was a guy sitting across from me. I think he was reading maybe Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, or something like that. And he asked a spiritual question to a man sitting near him. The man had a laptop, and on the laptop he had a bumper sticker, and it said something like, something about ask questions about God. Ask me questions about God, or something like that. And this guy asked him a question, and I hadn't talked to either one of these guys. I'm just kind of sitting over there listening. And um, the man says, I don't know, you should probably ask him. He probably has a better idea and can answer your question. And I look up, and he's pointing at me. I haven't met either one of these people. And I get in this long conversation with this, this kid um, who's reading this Richard Dawkins book. And years later, he's coming to know Jesus. Last week, he sat here in this service and said, I'm coming to know God in a way I've never known Him before. And I'm more relaxed than I've ever been. It's because God is at work in his heart. He's coming to know Jesus. Who are you discipling? And if you can't answer this question, then ask the question, what are you worshiping more than Jesus? Where do you need to repent so that you can begin to abide in Jesus? Here's the thing I've seen over the years. I have very little confidence in the churches that I've been a part of, that I've helped to plant. I've been a part of one, two, three, four, five uh, churches that were planted. Very little confidence in them. They'll all be gone one day. Some are already on the way. One, one of those is already gone. Yeah. But here's the deal. I have amazing confidence in David Ginsheimer and Justin Tucker and Matt Wynn, and Brian Carter, and Josh Bronley. These are men that I have invested tons of time in. Josh is writing songs in Nashville under a, a Christian music label. Justin's an ordained pastor at a church that's thriving and growing. Matt, I think Matt's preaching at two little country churches now. Brian was a kid who just wanted to get a master's degree, and I said, you ought to go to seminary if you're called to the ministry. And He's pastoring a church down in South Haven of about four or 500 people. I have confidence not in the churches that are planted. The churches will be gone. I have confidence in God's work in those men because those men are investing their lives, not only in their families, but they are investing their lives in the relationships that are around them. And, and here's, here's what I believe will be one of the greatest joys of heaven outside of just worship, worshiping Jesus. I'm convinced that in heaven, there's going to be a moment where we are going to see all the threads, not that we have done, but that Jesus has tied together in this tapestry. And we're going to see that it's not dozens, it's not hundreds, it's literally thousands upon thousands of people that God has impacted because His people were willing to say to someone else, Come and see.
if you don't have anybody you're discipling, it means you're not abiding in Jesus. So don't go and try to disciple someone. Just begin to abide in Jesus. But if you are abiding in Jesus and you're growing in Him, there will be people who will come along beside you and they will say, will you show me what it means to follow Jesus? And you will look at them and you will say, follow me as I follow Christ. And Jesus will continue to grow and weave his masterpiece, his tapestry, using our lives. Not because we're special. He looked at Peter and he said, Peter, you're the rock. Not because you're going to be a rock. No, Peter, he, he blew the whole thing up, right? He denied Jesus. Jesus was saying, Peter, this is who I'm going to make you to be through my spirit. Because the Peter that we see at Pentecost is not the Peter that we see standing around the fire, sniveling, lying to a little girl who asks if he's a follower of Jesus, and he denies Jesus. No, the Spirit transformed him. May the Spirit transform our lives in the same way. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the example that you've set before us. God, you've given us an example and you've given us a way in which you've shown us that you desire to grow your church, that you desire for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done, and it's through the making of disciples. Father, I pray that um, you would help give us clarity, uh, clarity of mind and passionate hearts to follow you and to abide in you. God, so oftentimes in our lives it seems that the world's just screaming at us. Like our lives are just flying by at 90 miles an hour. Father, through your Spirit, you have the ability to slow our lives down. Would you give us clarity? God, would you give us um, an ability to discern what really matters? God, help each of us to repent in areas of our lives where we have sought out wealth and pleasure and fame and influence far more than we've sought after you. God, would you make us a humble people who are just hungry for Jesus, who love to wake up in the morning and to abide with you. God, help us to be grafted into you. God, for apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to come to his table as you tear the bread. We remember Christ's body broken for us. And as you dip it in the juice, we're reminded of his blood that was shed for us. And he tells us, come and see. He tells us to follow me. Come and follow him. His table's open.